1: Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone.
0: Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. This morning I have two guests. Coming up in the first hour is uh, coming up in this first half hour is Stephen Shapiro. He's the author of Best Practices Are Stupid: Forty Ways to Out Innovate the Competition. Stephen Shapiro is, and maybe some of you know him, is one of the foremost authorities on innovation culture, collaboration, and open innovation. Um, Over the years, Stephen has shared his innovative philosophy in books such as 24-7 Innovation and The Little Book of Big Innovation Ideas. He has also trained more than 20,000 consultants in innovation during his 15-year tenure with Accenture. second guest is Robert Mayer, and we're going to be talking about his new book, How to Win Any Argument Without Raising Your Voice, Losing Your Cool, or Coming to Blows. And He talks about it in business, Uh, and many, and Larry King says this, this will be one of the most important books you've read in a long time. So maybe we can apply some of these how to win an argument at our Thanksgiving dinner, our Thanksgiving table. But first, best practices are stupid. Stephen M. Shapiro, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning.
2: It's great to be on, and Happy Thanksgiving.
0: Happy Thanksgiving. Okay, I thought best practices, we have to start out with this, and I'm a social worker, not a business person. Uh were good things, that we need best practices in order to have certain standards for people, so that if you're doing something in business, there is a kind of a, a formula for most people to turn to, or a doctor if he's treating a disease, turns to his best practice if someone has pneumonia there's certain drugs that he or she will give to you so this is kind of a you know best practices are stupid is uh, tell I mean that's a, a I guess quite a statement and uh, so explain that to us.
2: Well I think the examples you gave probably best practices are a good thing because clearly we want to be prescribing the right medicines and doing the right things but in the name of innovation i mean if you're if you're looking if you're a competitive organization that's looking to grow and you're just replicating what everyone else does then you're just in the middle of the pack so the question is where do you apply best practices more importantly where should you not apply best practices and also you need to recognize that what works for one organization might not work for another organization because they have a different culture, they have a different philosophy, they have different funding. So there's a lot of different reasons why it will work in one organization but not another.
0: Stephen, give us an example because I know you mentioned in the book, and you just said it really, you know, what works in one uh, culture, business culture doesn't work in another. And now that we're doing business all over the world, you really do have very different cultural differences. So I guess you do have to be creative and innovative and... How do you know when to do that, though? What do you do? Get, you know, obviously, you have say you have forty ways to out-innovate the competition. Shall we? You know, how do we start?
2: Well, I mean, the first thing is to, to take stock of what your organization does, with, what its strategy is, and how it wants to differentiate itself from the competition. Uh, it, it's also here's the thing: is when everybody talks about innovation, the first companies they turn to are Apple or Google or 3M, and they say, "Hey, we want to do what they do," and what they don't recognize is that your employees aren't the same, your, the way you run your business isn't the same, and even why these other companies do what they do is not necessarily the reason why you think it is. For example, Google gives their top engineers 20% of their time to work on anything they want, but this wasn't done in the name of innovation. This was actually done in the name of retention because they were losing these people to competitors and they wanted to create an environment where they'd want to stay. So we need to understand the why companies are doing things also.
0: So how do we evaluate our ordinary businesses? Let's say take a business where you employ 50, 100 people, for instance. You know, you're not Google. You're not Facebook. You know, everybody wants to do, be a billionaire like Mark Zuckerberg. How did he do it? He obviously is innovative and has changed the world. But, you know, most of us don't fall into that category. So we could, you know, we have a business, as I said, uh, and you can give an example of a type of business, perhaps you know h- how you would start and what you would do to be innovative in a particular. I don't like to use the word ordinary, but one that would you know we could relate to.
2: Well, I, I think a couple of things come into play. First of all, you need to recognize what it is that you want your business to be about. And every company is going to have different values. They're going to have different objectives and different ways that they want to compete in the market. Uh, the, to me, the single most important skill which is related to that though is we need to become better at asking questions. If you look at the way most organizations run, what they do is they say, well, we need to do this, we need to do that. They start copying what someone else has done and they don't step back and ask themselves, well, why are we doing this? Is there a better way to do it? And what are the things that we need to be solving that are unique to our organization? Now, so for example, I was working with this one small service organization and uh, it's a reasonable-sized company, but not a, a huge one. And we asked a very simple question, which was, you know, how do you compete? What is your differentiator? And they said, well, it's our it's our product strategy, our pricing. What we do is we have these great uh, offerings that we make, and they offer service contracts. So my question to them was, okay, how long does it take for your competition to replicate what you've done? And they said, on average, two weeks. So that's not really a differentiator if their competition can replicate it in two weeks. So we dug Digger to really figure out, well, what is it that sets them apart that someone else can't replicate? And then once we understood that, we could help them understand what are the questions they need to focus on in order to be able to really accelerate their innovation efforts.
0: So would you say that's the success of a Bill Gates or a Mark Zuckerberg or a Steve Jobs, because they were able to do that?
2: All, All those companies and people found the white space. I mean, they basically found the space where no one else was playing, and they were able to create something fundamentally different. So Bill Gates, I mean, he got a little lucky with DOS uh, in terms of the timing with IBM, but that was, you know, there was a need. If you look what Steve Jobs has done with Apple, he's created a completely new paradigm for interacting with our devices. And Mark Zuckerberg created something that didn't exist before. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, they created a need. And the problem is most... People are just trying to replicate, do what everyone else has done. So they're not playing in the white space. They're actually playing in the crowded space.
0: Yeah, that's so, a good example. You also say, and, I, and you're, I, at some point I guess you are quoting Steve Jobs as well, but creative people have to connect the dots, and, but you have to have enough dots, enough experiences to be able to connect them. So you need a lot. You need experience. I think you said number one, and I want you to comment that, enough dots to connect to to come up with something innovative but at the same time you have to be able to look at it in a different way. You have to be able to, you know, once you've had all those experiences, now you have to look at them in a different way to create your new, to
2: create your product. Absolutely. I mean, so, you know, Steve Jobs says that he uh, created sort of the metaphor for what he's doing by looking at calligraphy and applying that concept and its simplicity to the, the computers. Obviously, he also looked at the work that was being done in, uh, in uh, Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. But he had some fundamentally different questions. I mean, the way the mouse was developed by Apple is just a really interesting story because the mouse that was developed by Xerox was, you know, it broke quickly and cost thousands of dollars. And basically, the question Steve Jobs had tasked his team with is how do we create one that will last for a certain amount of time, that will cost a certain amount of money? fundamental paradigm shift in the way that would work so we need to be able to make these connections and that's really what it's about it's not about expertise because in fact one of the points i make is expertise is the enemy of innovation if you are an expert in something your natural inclination is going to be to do it the way you've always done it so what you need to do is step back and look at well how do i learn from what somebody else has done in a different space and how do i connect those types of experiences together
0: well i'm relating that i was online and i was watching some of your speeches one of them one of the ted conferences and i thought this was interesting cuz you said and i think this is kind of what you're alluding to now is that let's say you have an engineering problem you don't get just 50 engineers to solve the problem you may get 10 engineers to solve the problem and then you may get 10 biologists or 10 writers or so you bring a whole creative team in so that you get lots of different ways to approach and be creative about solving the problem.
2: Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot, and there's a few different ways you can do that. I mean, you can bring them together physically. You can, uh, you can do them virtually through some form of crowdsourcing where you actually pose a question and say, hey, anyone who can provide a solution, you know, will pay you money for your solution. Or you can think about the question differently. And so what we're really looking to do is be very, very deliberate about trying to make those connections. I'll give you a very quick example, which I love, which is uh, a toothpaste manufacturer wanted to develop a whitening toothpaste. And as they were developing it, someone asked an interesting question, which was, well, we're making, trying to make teeth white, but who else makes whites whiter? And what they realized is they have a different division of the same company that makes laundry detergent. So they went over, they talked to these guys, and they found that, that laundry detergent actually doesn't make whites whiter; it makes them blue. Laundry detergent is blue because it creates this optical effect that prevents the reflection of yellow. So they created a new type of toothpaste using the same thing that's in laundry detergent—a bluing agent—that instantly whitens your teeth. That's a pro- powerful connection.
0: Yeah, I love those kinds of examples. And 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 you also uh, another one that you may want to talk about is the one about the uh, I think it was an engineer who cut his who got a paper cut.
2: Yes. Yeah,
0: talk to us about that, because that's a good example of of what you're talking about in terms of a different way of solving a problem.
2: Yeah, I mean, sometimes the solution to a business problem can exist in the world of biology, which is this example. A a person who's working on trying to solve the problem of cracked gas pipelines. It's a a problem that occurs where they crack, they break, they leak, so they need to be able to find the cracks so they can go do the ceiling around them. And they've been working on this problem for decades, with no real true breakthroughs, because most of their techniques were focused on finding the crack. One day, this Scottish engineer got a paper cut, and he made that connection that you're talking about. He connected the capillaries in his finger with the problem he was working on, and he ended up creating this uh, coagulant ingredient that would go inside of gas pipelines that would automatically seal these cracks until a permanent fix could be done. So he connected biology to a gas pipeline. Do you think Stephen that
0: uh MBA programs let's say let's take the top 5 MBA po- programs Harvard and Wharton and uh Dartmouth and, and uh, Stanford or whatever uh, do they address this problem I mean do you do you speak to these universities or I mean or are they just following the same kinds of curriculum that they've been they, they've had for the past whatever 50 years or
2: or do they embrace what you're talking about well, I speak to a lot of universities, and I actually also speak to a lot of high schools, because I really think we need to get to people younger. Um, but I, I do think there's a shift. I think there's a recognition that the concept of innovation is important. I still think, though, it's a very reductionist mentality, and it still comes from the realm of, of expertise. There, there's, there's still this prevalent model and the belief that the more we know about a topic, the more we can innovate around it. But if you look at some interesting research that was done actually by a Harvard Business School professor, he looked at 17,000 patents and found that although most of the patents were what I'll call derivative or adaptive patents, that is they were built on some other patent, there were a bunch of breakthroughs, totally new, uh, totally new inventions. And what he discovered was of the things that were fundamental breakthroughs in every situation, they were solved by somebody from a different domain of expertise or from multidisciplinary teams. So like with the gas pipeline, it was solved through the lens of biology. Uh, And if you looked at it, they found that nanotechnology was solving chemistry problems and things of that nature. Those were the breakthroughs, and that's, I'm not sure, something that's taught enough yet.
0: Uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, well, what about the cure for cancer? Maybe we're going about it in the wrong way, because who's doing it? Who's trying to, to find the cure for cancer? Researchers, are, I'm thinking of you know breast cancer, and, and we haven't seemed to made too many strides in the past, well, 20, 30 years, right? So do we have the wrong people going at the problem?
2: It might be. I, I don't know if you saw this. It was a very interesting thing that was just released, uh, having to do with AIDS research. And they've had, you know, molecular biologists and others working on this problem for for decades now, and they finally cracked the code. They finally cracked the code on the way the AIDS virus virus replicates itself, and the way they did it was actually by creating a video game called It. And what they did was they had, I mean, they just opened it up, and they had 250,000 video gamers playing this game where they're actually just folding molecules, and every time they would fold it in a way that created something that used less energy, therefore became more efficient, and had a higher likelihood of replicating, they would get points. If they folded in a way that didn't do that, they would lose points. And in this process, they were able to basically crowdsource a significantly better understanding of the way some of the enzymes work with the AIDS virus, and that was a major breakthrough. It came from video gamers.
0: And when did this happen? Is this something that
2: recently happened? This happened within the... I mean, it was just announced uh, in the news just, I think, last month. I mean, this is a very recent thing. Uh, And I think we're going to see more of this. I think we're going to see more use of uh, crowdsourcing and collaboration and things of that nature to tackle these complex problems. They're not going to be solved in the laboratories. They're not going to be solved by the researchers they're going to be solved by the masses who are able to look at the problem from fundamentally different perspectives.
0: So you talk about going into the high schools, which is important, and I agree with you, because that whole, you know, to get away from that, look, looking at authority and, and, and expertise is the only way to solve a problem or be efficient at what you're doing, but you have to... You, I don't want to say think out of the box. I don't, think, but you have to be able to, to be creative and innovative in the way that you're talking about. So, how would you do this with young, with high school kids, for instance, helping them to use the computer or the internet in this kind of a way? What do you, when you go in and you do a program? What do you tell them?
2: Well, I think they're actually very great at using the internet this way. They're naturally inclined to do that. Unfortunately, what happens is in the schools is we try to get them to replicate what everyone else has done, and replication is not innovation. So the thing where I start, and I've actually done this with a number of schools, it's actually a lot of fun, is I have a game that I've developed which helps people understand what their unique contribution is to innovation. It's called personality poker. And this personality poker game is something I've played with high school students around the country, and it helps them understand how they contribute to innovation, how they detract from innovation, and who they should be partnering with that they would not naturally be inclined to partner with if they want to develop something new. And this helps them think much more entrepreneurial, which is really the skill that I'm trying to instill in them.
0: Give us an example, an example that would, you know that you actually give to the to the to the students.
2: Um. So there's a, a couple things that we'll do, and, and the, the the objective of this particular game is to recognize that there's four pieces to the innovation process, and we need all four, and all four require different people because each of those. Steps require different styles. So there are, for example, very analytical people who will be very good at understanding what are the problems we should focus on. There's creative people who will be great at finding solutions to the problems. There are great implementers and executors who will get the things done. And then there's the people who are great at relating to people. And if they understand that and what their role is in innovation, then they can say, okay, well, I'm this, this creative person. And it's important to recognize creativity and innovation are not the same thing. I'm a creative person, but I chase bright, shiny objects all the time. I get excited by novelty, which means I need to partner with the person who's typically going to annoy me, which are these planners. I mean, they love organization and structure. I find that limiting, but I also know it's the key to me getting anything done. And that's the first step, is for the individual to understand what's their blind spots in terms of how they prefer to innovate. And one of the things that that, that I've
0: learned over the years, I think that people... Uh, tend to how, when you're in a managerial position and you're hiring people, managers tend to hire people like themselves. So this is kind of just contrary to, to, to doing good business or being creative in your business, right? I mean, but isn't that true? Uh, so you really have to take a look at yourself, as you say. And, and I'm analytical. I don't want to hire somebody who's analytical, or I don't want to go into business with someone I need who has the same skill that I do, right? Is that but you get, that's a mindset you have to get away from.
2: You're. Absolutely right. And one of the one of the tips is hire people you don't like. And the point is that organizations in the past have always hired people who fit the mold. And there's a reason for this. I mean in the past, efficiency was the name of the game. So if people think like you, you will get things done more quickly. But the problem is if everybody thinks the same way, it's very difficult to move in a different direction. So what we need to do is become conscious at building creative tension into the organization in the way we hire people, the way we motivate people, the way we retain people, the way we review people. We need to think about all these different pieces and how do we actually appreciate the divergent points of view, the people who don't fit the mold and what their contribution is.
0: Maybe, Stephen, this would work in marriage, because when you marry, people marry people they like and they end up getting divorced, maybe they need to marry people they don't like and <laughs> add another piece to the relationship.
2: Uh, <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's a little bit of truth to that, yeah. and I do always ask here's the, here's the funny thing is, when I start off when I 'm doing a personality poker game, I will say, how many of you have been told and believe that in relationships opposites attract, and most hands go up? And, and the reality is there's irrefutable scientific evidence that opposites repel. Now, when people look at their spouses, what they tend to do is they tend to focus, if if they are different, they focus on the differences rather than focusing on what is common and then how can the person's differences actually help them and complement them. If you have somebody who's like you, that's great, but it also means if you're two people who aren't good at paying bills, you're never going to pay the bills. So you'd better hire people who are different than you if they're not in the relationship. So you still, even in a relationship, you want to make sure you have all the different pieces addressed.
0: Good advice. What about uh, resistance? What kind of resistance? What's the biggest thing that when you go into these high schools, the principals, the teachers, the kids themselves, what, what, what's the, 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 what would you say was the biggest resistance you get to the kind of you know, uh, training that you're giving them?
2: Well, certainly there's no resistance from the high school kids. The energy level is un. Believable, And in fact, there's so much research that's been done in this area. I mean, there's research that shows that 98% of 5-year-old kids are highly creative. That's 98% of 5-year-old kids, yet by the time they're 25, it's down to 2%. And what happens is we beat the creative juices, and we create the entrepreneurial uh, attributes, and we beat the fun out of people. And so what I try to do is first and foremost when I'm working with the high school kids is instill a sense of fun, a sense of wonder, a sense of play because that in itself is the key to stimulating innovation because there's a part of the brain, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is that judgmental part of the brain, which kills innovation. But when you're in a state of play and relaxation, that is quieted and it allows you to think more freely. So, like with adults, I'll always say, look, if you want to think of something more creative, meditate or relax or sleep or take a shower, that's how you'll actually get some of your creative juices flowing because the mind has to wind itself down.
0: Yeah, I think that's true I for myself. But when I do my exercise or I swim or I walk, that's when I, that's when I think about things that are exactly as you're talking about. I can be the most creative, and then I have to run home and write them down so I don't forget them. But if I'm sitting on a desk in my office and and trying to be creative, it doesn't work.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You can't, I mean, there's there's sort of this weird paradox where when you have a goal in mind, when there's something you're looking to do, it's nearly impossible to do it. And there's a lot of research that I've done and others have done that actually show the more you focus on your goals, the less likely you are to achieve them. The more you try to work on something and force it, the less likely it will happen. So these things actually happen when you're focused on something of a higher value. And like if you're looking to sell to someone, for example, the best salespeople do not focus on the sale, which is that goal, but rather they focus on a present moment activity, which is how do I serve the customer best? And we've done studies that show that people who really focus on the needs of the customer without any attachment to the the goal, the sale, sell more than people who are so goal-focused.
0: Stephen, how did you... You know, you, how did you, I guess, you become so innovative. Like, you know, we have a few more minutes. I want to hear your story. I mean, how? you know, you went to, I assume, the same kind of high school and college uh, that we all did, where they just kind of, like as you say, squished the creativity out of you. How did you get the creativity not squished out of you?
2: Well, I think I was very lucky, uh, and I'll say two two things in particular, and I haven't really thought about this until you asked it, but I'd say there's two things. One is my parents. Uh, they just raised me in a way which was fantastic, because basically they said, you can make whatever choices you want to make in your life, and they basically said, the only requirement is you have to go to college. We don't care where, we don't care what you major in, but you have to go to college, Beyond that, you can do whatever you want with your life. And they were supportive, and whatever I wanted to do, I th- And so that allowed me to explore who I was, rather than being forced into what they thought I should be. And then, I think the other thing is, from the time I was a really young kid, I was playing the saxophone. And there's a lot of good research that shows that, the you know, the creative brain and improvisational music go hand in hand, and so I think I was lucky enough to be, uh, you know, playing the saxophone when I was a kid, and I think that's helped influence me also.
0: Which comes first, that you played the saxophone and then you became creative? Or you were a creative person, and so that's why you took up playing the saxophone?
2: Well, again, I come from the perspective that everybody is creative. So the creativity was actually born into us. And unlike a lot of people, I just didn't have it get beat out of me. Uh, And the, the reason why I want to play the saxophone is my dad actually played the saxophone when he was a kid. So it was something which I thought would be really cool. And, but I, I really come from the premise that we all have it inside of us, and we have just learned habits that stop us from being able to think creatively and connect those dots, as Steve Jobs would say.
0: Well, I think, Stephen, you said that with the statistic. I, you know, uh, What did you say when you start with kindergartners? You know, 98% of them are creative, and by the time they, what, graduate from high school, 2% of them are, or whatever. The statistic, it's horrifying.
2: It is. It is, and it, because what happens is we as a society, first of all, think about the way Schools are structured. Standardized testing has become so important, and I understand why, but the problem is just using the word standardized automatically tells you that we're trying to fit people into a really, really, really small box. And thinking for yourself is no longer uh, something which is tolerated. People who think for themselves don't pass standardized testing. I mean, I was a horrible student. I was a horrible student, especially in college. Oh, I was terrible. But any time you gave me something which gave me free reign to go create something cool and interesting, that's when I shined. And it was probably the only reason why I ever graduated. So I think we need to get people to understand that everybody thinks differently and they operate differently. If we can tap into that innate ability and at the same time have some measure of of, uh, success against one another, I think that's really important.
0: Yeah, I think that's great advice and I have another example. I went to a, uh, a boarding school and I, and I've, it was a very tough, difficult one and it did kind of supports what you're saying and there was one of the women, and young girls, or young women in my class who was an incredible writer and, and wrote beautiful poetry and went on to be an author. When she took, got, took her, her, uh, SATs in English, she got like 520 and everybody, you know, people who were just, you know, not good writers were getting in the six and seven hundreds and, you know, everyone was shocked. And I think that's a good example of what, because she's always, you know, she was just way in a different place
2: than some standardized test. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's true. And I, I did even worse than that in my, uh, English. <laughs> well, SATs, And I now have five books.
0: <laughs> Alright, well
2: let's talk. We only have a couple, well I guess about three minutes
0: left. So, Best Practices Are Stupid, 40 Ways to Out-Innovate the Competition. That's just one of your books, yeah. Uh, and you can go to your website, Steve Shapiro.com, right? Right, Shapiro.com. You have Shapiro. websites here, though. Um, stupidpractices.com as well. Right. Yeah. So to catch up with what you're doing, when's your next lecture?
2: Uh, I am doing something in Washington, D.C. next week. And then uh, what I love is this is the time of year when most companies, things slow down a little bit, and so it gives me a chance to reflect and prepare for 2012. Great. Well, it's
0: been great having you on the show today. And, uh, as a, again, best practices are stupid, 40 ways to out-innovate the competition. And there's a lot more in the book than we had an opportunity to talk
2: about, but uh,
0: uh, it's really inspiring. Stephen M. Shapiro, thanks so much for being on the show.
2: Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. It's Great. Bye
0: now. Ha- have a good Thanksgiving. Thanks, thanks you, too. Uh, coming up next is Robert Mayer. Robert Mayer is the author of How to Win Any Argument Without Raising your voice, losing your cool, or coming to blows. And a lot of people um, have difficulty with that at this time of year, at Thanksgiving, when all the family comes together, and you've got blended families, and you've got families where there's only two people sitting at the Thanksgiving table, and sometimes you have ten from or more from very different kinds of families. So it is a real challenge. But he talks not only about getting along with with family and friends, but uh, Robert Mayer is also a lawyer, and he, when he talks about how to win any argument, he's also talking about how to win any kind of a negotiation as well. So this has—you can apply this to business, coworkers, bosses, families, all of those things. Um, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to the Catherine Zox Show, and you can listen to us live every Wednesday from 10 to 11, and then we put the show up at the end of the day, and it's archived, and you can listen to it anytime. Don't go away; we'll be back in a minute.
1: in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time.
3: Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Aldona Ambler. On the show, Aldona and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America
1: Business. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast.
3: All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion
1: counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
0: We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. Thanks for joining us this morning. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Robert Mayer, author of How to Win Any Argument Without Raising Your Voice, Losing Your Cool, or Coming to Blows, and that's his new book. Uh, He's written several books, but he's going to be talking to us today about the art of the argument, um, how to win any argument. Uh, Larry King says this will be one of the most important books you've read in a long time, and we're going to be talking also about the new normal when you're talking about arguing. Uh, and as I said to uh, Robert just a few minutes ago, before we got on the air, this may help you all at the Thanksgiving table. And not that I want to start any kind of arguments or tension, but I think it's kind of implicit when in, in the whole situation when families get together. But anyway, welcome to the show,
4: Robert. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, thank you, Catherine. Yeah. And when you're talking about the Thanksgiving table, the guy who wins the argument is the one who gets the drumstick, right? <laughs>
0: But what about I have to ask you this question because as I'm looking at your book I'm thinking, well what about if both these people have read your book now so and and know your strategies and techniques then what happens?
4: Well, it sounds like we might have a tie.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Well, I forgot to mention you are an attorney. So, uh you're used to arguing and you're used to winning, I assume. But uh what is the art of the argument and what's the new normal? What well, what are we talking about? Well, <laughs>
4: Let's start off by realizing that most people have arguing habits. Catherine, they don't have arguing techniques. And you can kind of prove that to yourself because most people will deal the same way with a dry cleaner that ruined their blouse as they would with a landlord or the Ford dealer or with the neighbor, you know, who has the barking dog. So you start off by realizing that even though you think that you have it down cold and that you're a sophisticated arguer, not really. You just have habits. So once we can get past that so that people are receptive to the notion that they have a lot to learn, we talk about the traps and the mistakes that they make. And, you know, most people believe that somebody who's acting emotionally can be persuaded by logic. And, and Catherine, most people believe that the more you talk, the more you influence And most people tend to deal with impossible people by being impossible back. They interrupt and they raise their voice. They overgeneralize by saying things like, Catherine, you always, or Catherine, you never. Or or they become very disparaging. You know, Catherine, you don't understand. What's your problem? Or, Catherine, why can't you be reasonable? And people believe that the other guy can be talked into something, but I can't remember an instance, and maybe you can, Catherine, when somebody said, oh, Catherine, you silver-tongued devil, I'm going to see and do it your way. doesn't happen.
0: It doesn't happen. And, you, Robert, you mentioned every single one of those, the f- neighbor with the barking dog, the car dealership. You named each one of my uh, issues, and you're right. Uh, trying to argue them in exactly the same way and it doesn't work, especially when you put... in couples also, when you, they put each other down in, in just the way you describe and and they're not going to win the argument. It exacerbates the argument.
4: So I, the question then is, what does work? And once you get past understanding that, again, you have habits rather than techniques, what are you going to do? Well, I like the way the New York Times described my methodology. And it said... Bob Mayer uses mental judo. He uses the other guy's energy to win. Mental judo. The word judo translated from Japanese to English means gentle way. And you want to be able to use the other guy's energy, and to use that energy, you have to be able to tap into the energy itself. Give us an example of
0: that. Because well, as you're saying, it makes sense. But in you know, ordinary uh, situations, as you described before, how do we do that?
4: Well you start off by having what the book calls a still center. A still center is because you may not be able to well you can't ignore the other person's emotions but you can manage them and it's like tennis. You know people react to the way you act. And so you want to react and act in a way so that when you hit the ball it's going to be returned to you in a way that you can deal with it. So you have to be in control of how you're going to be, Catherine, and that starts with a still center. Then the question that you have is you know, are you trying to get compliance or commitment? Let's just say a painter did a lousy job painting your family room and you want him to repaint it. Well, you're arguing for compliance. You want him to repaint those walls so that they're satisfactory to you. On the other hand, if you have a teenage daughter who just refuses to study, refuses to do her homework, refuses to do anything on time, you're not looking for compliance. You're really looking for commitment. You want that teenager to study and, and to look at how she interfaces with her schoolwork in a totally different way. So you have different objectives, and with those different objectives, your approach is going to be different. Um, you know, it, Listen. Well, example okay, and here we go. Uh, so
0: our approach is going to be different. You want to get your daughter or your son to do his, his or her homework. You want them to be committed to doing it.
4: That's your objective.
0: How do you go that's about? That's
4: my it? objective. So you know, I've done a lot of uh, radio shows where the listeners call in, and I've done my you know uh, presentations at bookstores. And for some reason, teenagers and studying seems to be a, a hot topic, and one of the most common concern and I collected 17 tips that parents had and you know something none of them really were any good because the tips were like bribes and threats and intimidation and that may get that teenager to study tomorrow or to hand in her paper on time this coming Friday but it doesn't change her work habits so the question is is, how am I going to be able to change how she feels about herself and about her schoolwork? I'm looking for commitment rather than the one-shot compliance with the painter repainting the walls. And by the way, commitment also tends to be what it is that you're looking for when you're dealing with any kind of a familial relationship or with employers and with people that you want to have an ongoing relationship with. So the question then is, well, you know, how are you going to proceed? And the the book talks in terms of, again, mental judo, and mental judo is in large part self-persuasion. It starts off that you express your thoughts to that teenager by calling them your feelings. If I tell you, Catherine, I feel cold, you can't tell me I feel warm. If I tell you I feel sad, you can't tell me I feel happy. Because the word feelings is something that's not refutable. It's, it's something that's very personal. So that's part of, you know, tapping into the other person's energy and lining up with that energy.
0: So if you have a daughter who refuses to do her homework, you're supposed one should say as a parent, or um, it makes me feel bad that you're not doing your work, or it makes me feel... Sad because you aren't going to be successful, or how do how would you say that?
4: Well, you have the right start because you're expressing how you feel. Then the question is: Is what are you going to do now that you have the still center and you've expressed your feelings? And there are a number of techniques, and you know it's really hard to turn your prize ox into a bullion cube. But one of the primary techniques is the art of asking what the book calls Surgical Questions, because if you are going to have to answer my questions, you're going to start evaluating you know, why it is that you, maybe you're not studying. So if I were to say to that teenager, um, Sue, um, you know, what is the reason that you, you know, don't want to work on that paper that's due? She can't say because I don't feel like it, she would have to give you a specific answer. If I phrase the question, what is the reason? Because what questions have to be answered very specifically? If I said, Sue, why is it you don't want to turn that paper in on time? She's going to say, I don't feel like it, or I don't want to. Why questions have because answers? What questions give you specific answers? So you now have something that you can deal with um, at the beginning
0: so you have you have a, a productive kind of dialogue going on i I also want to talk about you know you talk about different objectives, and I have one that I want to present to you because this is something that every time i and, and you talk about um, argue the well, how to win any argument when you 're talking to someone for instance on the phone because that 's a different way of presenting yourself or it can be I guess but public uh, um, Customer service, I mean, every time I have to get on with somebody who's a customer service person before I even begin to present my problem or to argue with mm-hmm. them about what the issue is, I can feel my blood pressure just, you know, going sky high. I'm already prepared for battle. I know that's not good. So what, because what, that's a situation that most of us are confronted with every day. Telephone service, so you can start with that or whatever
4: it is. Well, we all have that experience, and the person on the other end of the phone may not even be in the same country that you're in, (laughs) Um, but one of the ways of, of being able to make some headway is to change the level that you're dealing with. I want to speak to a supervisor. I want to speak to a manager, and most often that person, you know, becomes so concerned that you're literally almost like reporting them. Uh, that they'll be a little bit more flexible and a little bit more concerned and a little bit more caring. So sometimes you just change the arguing level or the negotiating level. But you know, you use the word phone. Um, I'm I'm in Los Angeles, and for me to drive across town is a major effort these days, just because of all the congestion, the traffic. And so I tend, like most people living in the big city. Uh, I tend to do uh, what's efficient rather than what's effective. Now, Catherine, if you think about it, most arguments you've ever had that have been resolved have been resolved face-to-face because you were meeting with that other person. But you're not going to drive across town to meet with somebody else. You're going to get on the phone because getting on the phone is efficient. But there's a, if it's an important argument, you don't want to be on the phone because it's easier to be told no on the telephone than it is in person. And arguing is the art of the one-on-one and you really can't have an, a one-on-one interfacing with the other person if you're on the phone. And phone conversations tend to be much briefer than in-person conversation and so Catherine, they're more competitive, combative. And it takes a lot of patience to be a good listener, and you don't know if that other person is even, you know, somebody that you're getting through to. And so if it's something that's important, it may be worth it to get in the car and and see that person. And, you know, conversely, Catherine, we have the same problem with email. Email's really great. But, you know, if you're going to express your feelings in a writing You know, emails tend to, again, be very brief and to the point, and they don't reflect what you're all about. And when you think of the art of the one-on-one, you know, you're always more than just the messenger. You actually are part of the message. And I was thinking about that when I was writing the book, and I realized that the concerts that I go to that I enjoy the most is where the concert artists actually, you know, talks to the audience a little bit between songs. That way it's not like just sticking a, 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 a DVD or something in a in a recorder and, and hearing the album.
0: But what you're saying is, I think, Robert, is that, I mean, there are situations where you just can't, I mean, there are maybe two kinds of situations where you can have a connection, a one-on-one, you're actually there, it's not a phone or virtual connection, and those are two different things. But I mm-hmm. think today we have to deal with most of this, or much of the confrontation of, that we do have is on the phone or on the natter. um and so we don't have the opportunity to meet someone face-to-face, and that can be really frustrating, and as you say, even with people, now you're having to deal with people in different countries that you have to struggle to understand what they're saying, that's, and, that's, even, and that's, frustra- <clears throat> that's frustrating as well.
4: Well, you're not going to you know, jump on a plane and fly off to Brazil no. to talk to somebody <laughs> because your uh, Internet isn't working properly. But I'm talking about bigger, more important issues. And just to consider, you know, do you want to do what's most effective or are you going to do some shortcuts and do what's most efficient? And most people, you know, are not that reflective. And I'm, I'm suggesting that they that they should be. Um. Let's talk about
0: the personal. Let's talk about uh, Thanksgiving because I I can't tell you how many friends, relatives, colleagues, you know, weeks before are anticipating like the the arguments that are going to come up at the Thanksgiving table. Um, That's the reality. And how do you resolve those? And there you are face to face. You're face to face with the ones you love and your enemies and you're all sitting in the same place and you're supposed to be enjoying yourself. That's the objective. So how do you – let's maybe give us some hints as to how to handle that or how to win any argument in a positive way. You know,
4: to to begin with, um, the the arguments that are around the Thanksgiving table hopefully are more about politics and sports rather than personalities who are at the table. But, you know, you have the typical family arguments that come up during the holidays, like, you know, who are you going to invite to spend the holidays at your house? Uh, Who are you going to invite to your party? Whose house will you go to for Thanksgiving dinner, your son or your daughter's? And at what age do you stop giving gifts to grandchildren and nephews and cousins? And do you still send gifts to the nephew who never sends you thank you notes? And those are the kind of typical small family arguments. Um, But when you're talking about... Well, I have to stop you as a social worker, though. They may be small arguments. They
0: seemingly... Appear to be not very important issues, but families break up over that. Families actually—they won't have Thanksgiving next year with the family member they got in the argument with about uh, who's cooking what. You know, one wants to cook the turkey, but the other one does, and it—and families actually separate over those seemingly
4: very small issues. Well, let's talk about how you can resolve issues uh, that are that involve family. And let's just take it out of who's going to bake the turkey, but make it a little bigger. Let's say you're talking about going on vacation with your spouse. And uh, your spouse has a job that keeps her in her car because she spends the day going to various customers' offices. And, and maybe she's always on the go and uh, her lunch might be a quick lunch of power bars and she wants to spend the vacation on the beach, and she wants good food, and wants to stay at a high-rise luxury hotel, and she wants entertainment and maybe dancing, because she's had, it you know, being cooped in that car driving all over town. And let's say that her husband is saying, I don't want to do that. I've had too many business lunches, and I don't want to be in a high-rise hotel, because I sit around pushing elevator buttons all day to get to my office, and and to other people in the in the uh, in the building, and my dermatologist said I shouldn't be spending that much time in the sun, and, and I'd like to get in the car and go and maybe have some kind of a, a cultural or educational experience, and so that's kind of a typical bigger argument, and so each of the spouses is making demands and counter demands, and. There are certain things that they clearly disagree on. Endless hours versus sightseeing and big hotels versus no high-rises and gourmet dining versus simpler meals and uh, entertainment versus the cultural experience. Better what they seldom, <laughs> seldom do in resolving that kind of an issue is they don't realize that they have certain shared needs. And those shared needs are, you know, Catherine both want to get away and they want to share an, uh, a vacation they can enjoy together. And they want to be gone maybe a week or two and they don't want to harm their relationship. Now, when I gave that type of a situation to my workshop students, 90% said, oh, the solution is separate vacations. But if instead of looking at separate vacations as the quick and dirty answer to that kind of an argument, you would maybe look at how those interests can be reconciled, and maybe if they were to look at their interests and how they could be reconciled, a cruise might be perfect because you have the high-rise luxury. You, The spouse uh, can spend her day uh, uh, out near the pool on deck, and the husband could be touring around Italy or wherever it is that they're going to, and the food and the entertainment are all there. Yet, if you don't care about the food and entertainment and want a quiet corner to read, that's there as, as well. And so by reconciling interests, you're resolving the conflict and everybody is getting what they want as opposed to having this linear tug of war as to whether it's going to be, you know, the beach vacation or the driving around looking at pyramids vacation or whatever. And uh, you have peace returning to the hollow. So because what you the reality have is, is, the is, you're is that if you do it as a, a tug of war, somebody's not going to be happy on that vacation.
0: Well isn't that the difference between an effective solution and an efficient solution? The efficient would be take separate vacations and that's it. That's efficient. No one you're not going to be arguing. But the this the going on the cruise as an example is an effective way of winning the argument or it's a win
4: I guess both of it's a win-win
0: situation for the couple.
4: Right, it's reconciling their needs so that they're both really getting what they want, not exactly what they want but close enough that they'll be a happy camper and enjoy being with each other on vacation, and one of them is not going to be resentful because he didn't get her or his way.
0: That's a great example, and I think that that's something. And, and you, I think in order to be able to do that, and you can put that into different uh, situations, social situations, you have to be able to emotionally step back, don't you? You have to kind of get out of the, the playing field or in your head, so that you can evaluate, like you talk about
4: in the book? Absolutely. That, yeah. Because that's what the mental judo is all about, is yeah. tapping into the other person's energy as opposed to resisting that energy. You know, I told you that 90% of the workshop students wanted separate vacations, but should we go back to the teenager who won't study? Because that's a, a different situation. You're talking about, a, you know, looking for a long-term change. Um, and... Uh, The the suggestions that people made in in call-in shows and uh, at bookstores is, you know, use logic. But again, you know, people acting emotionally don't act very well to logic. And if you, as a parent, have a domination play like, you know, Sue, I insist that you get that paper done, uh, that's an invitation to a power struggle because domination plays naturally lead to to, uh, power struggles. And if you're negotiating with that teenager, you're not getting what you want, because the word negotiation, by definition, means that there's some kind of a compromise. And if I offer an incentive to, to Sue, uh, saying, you know, if, if you get that paper in on time and it's you know on your teacher's desk by Friday, I'll let you use the car to go to the mall Sunday afternoon. Well, that doesn't change Sue's study habits. All it does is get the paper on time uh, to the teacher. And so what am I going to do? I can make threats, but, you know, threats only cause resentment. And so, you know, again, want to be able to use self-persuasion because I'm looking for a long-term change in how Sue looks at school and how she behaves towards school. That's different than, you know, the, the conflicting vacations, which is kind of a one-shot deal, deciding where to go this holiday season.
0: So that's an important point, and, and obviously this is covered in the book, but you have to evaluate whether it is a long-term or a short-term goal, like taking a vacation or deciding what movie to go to or those kinds of things.
4: Right, and you also have to you know, look at the relationship. Uh, the book has a, you know, you said the new normal. The new normal... Uh, the, the book just came out with a revised edition where there are a couple brand new chapters that the publisher requested. And the publisher said, you know, Bob, conversations are tougher. People are more difficult. It's all part of you know the new normal and the recession and harder times. Uh, how are you going to deal with that? And I said, well, you know, one way of dealing with it is to realize that if necessary, there are what the book calls heavy metal moves, which is moves that um, that get compliance. Um, and those heavy metal moves, though, may alienate the other person. Uh, they impact the relationship with the other person. So you have to really appreciate the fact that uh, you may be able to get what you want using these heavy metal moves, but it may not be to your best interest. So I, I think
0: that's an important point, though, with the new normal being that we are, at least in this particular time, we are people are under a lot of stress, so that creates a lot of anxiety, and obviously then that creates a lot of this kind of negative trying to get, arguing that you talk about, and so you're you it's real i guess it's really important then to follow some of the the script that you have in the book because of this because of the stress that we are under i mean the economic stress and things move more quickly is also i think that that's another part of it communication is much faster uh things are expected to be resolved quicker than 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 they used to be so you've got a lot of factors there that affect the, how we win an argument
4: you're right on and and so uh, again uh, you have you know, the the lower key, uh, more gentle way of winning an argument uh, uh, that people use when they're dealing with spouses and other people that are important to them and where the relationship needs to be preserved. And you have the heavy metal moves because you may have folks that you don't have a long-term relationship with, maybe business-type customers and things that are uh, not the most important customers in your, in your Rolodex, but, again, where you want to be able to convince them that they need to change how they perceive the problem.
0: I think also you are, dear, maybe I'm repeating myself, but I think we only have a couple minutes left. We have to keep in mind that we have more relationships to deal with, too. You talk about extra stress because of communicating on the Internet, because of the ways uh, uh, of telephones and texting and all the different ways we can communicate. So we are constantly confronted with these, with more people, more arguments, more stuff we have to deal with, and so you want to get it right the first time, right? Well, um,
4: and you have more decisions. You have to actually well, yeah. stop, take a breath, and decide You know which of the alternative approaches is appropriate not only to the issue at hand, but to and with the person that you're arguing with. Well, um, we
0: have to say goodbye. We only have a couple minutes left, so I do want to... Uh, mention your book again: How to Win Any Argument Without Raising Your Voice, Losing Your Cool, or Coming to Blows. Robert Mayer, who um, is a pro at this, conducting negotiations, mediation, um, and maybe some of you, you know, have seen you on uh, CNN and Weekend Today in New York. So um, you're out there. Um, I thank you so much for being on the show. So mm. really, it is. It's a handy little book, and uh, I can. It, I, I will. Uh, recommend it to uh, not just my audience.
4: Well, thank you, Catherine. And people who want to know more about the book and maybe even see a little bit of its text should go to the website, thewaytowin.net. Thewaytowin.net.
0: Thewaytowin.net. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much, Robert Mayer.
4: Catherine, I thank you so much, and have a good Thanksgiving and a good
0: holiday. Thank you. um, I'm Catherine Fox, and you're listening to the Catherine Fox Show, your social worker with a microphone on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great and happy Thanksgiving, and I hope you enjoyed the show this morning, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding
3: program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. of pill pharmacy prices again. Get Viagra for less than $3 a pill. Call 800 789 7213 today and save up to $500 and get 40 pills for just $99. Healthy Man is fast, easy, and affordable. Operators are waiting at 800 789 7213 to take your call now. Call 800 789 7213. That's 800 789 7213. Again, 800 789 7213.